Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jared Knowles. Based in Watertown, Massachusetts, Jared is a statistical programmer and social scientist and founder and president of Sybilytics Consulting, a data science consulting company that provides analysis and data science software solutions in the criminal justice, public finance, and education sectors. You can follow him on Twitter at jknowles and check out his website at jaredknowles.com. And you can learn more about Sybilytics at sybilytics.com and at Sybilytics on Twitter. Jared is co-author of two books that have been published on LeanPub, Education Data Done Right, Lessons from the Trenches of Applied Data Science, and Education Data Done Right, Volume 2, Building on Each Other's Work. In these books, Derrida and his colleagues write about the missing elements that are critical to success in building data capacity in education agencies, addressing the important work being done by data scientists and others in the education sector across the United States, helping schools and leaders in education to shape everything from policy to law to strategic planning and managing enrollments. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jared's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a writer and co-author. So thank you very much, Jared, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself on the path to a career in social science and data science and political science. I think geography is a really big part of what I do now and also my origin story. So I, I was actually born and raised in Montana in the United States, which is a pretty rural part of the country, very large and very sparsely populated. I grew up in a small town there um, and I moved to a smaller town to go to high school. And what I kind of saw uh, when I changed towns was uh, how different the school system changed. As a kid, you're very plugged into the school system. And so you, you can get a real sense of the difference uh, is between how adults in the school system are acting when you move between the school systems. And I thought that's, you know, we're still in the same state. We're still generally the same kinds of people, the same economy, yet these two towns had very different school systems. And it got me really thinking about politics and school boards. Um, so I, I wanted to get out of Montana as fast as I could when I graduated. So I went to college in Oregon. And uh, so I went further west and I went out to college outside of Portland. And there I really studied school boards in, in college. And that was what I got really interested in what I wanted to do my graduate work in was really to learn about this, this phenomenon in the United States about how we run schools with these very local elected officials. And a couple of hops and a jump and I went to graduate school in Wisconsin. So I kind of stayed along the Northern part of the United States. I guess I, I said I didn't like winter, but I stay in cold places. And, I, and while I was there, I realized that in graduate school, I wanted to do something more hands-on. And so I started working for the state government in Wisconsin. I worked there for six really pleasant years. Um, I've learned a lot about working in state government and the, the way state government sort of works and interacts with school systems. So I was working in the education department. Then I moved uh, to Watertown outside of Boston, Massachusetts, when uh, my spouse got a job here. And that's when I decided to start Civilytics um, because I, I had identified while I was working for state government some things that could be better served if I was sort of outside of government and wanted to see if that could work. And, uh, you know, five years, we just had our five year anniversary this year for Civilytics and, um, you know, the book's a big part of that. And so that, you know, that that's kind of how we got to where we are now in a nutshell. Thanks for sharing that really great story. Um, I'm from Saskatchewan, uh, originally myself in the middle, middle of Canada. So I know what it's like to come from cold, sparsely populated places. Um, and actually, I went to six different schools from kindergarten to grade 12. So I know what it's like to sort of notice differences like that. Do you remember the first difference that you that struck you as a kid, you know, between one school system and another? 
I think the, the biggest difference that was really immediate to me was one school was very academic, like very, it's still public high school, but it was very academically focused, or at least there was a place to be very academically focused and challenged. In the school I moved to, uh, you know, not to say too, to anything too unkind, but I felt immediately that there was not a, a set of adults who were really caring about really academically challenging the students. That wasn't the focus of the school system. And you could just, you felt it in, in every class and sort of in, in the expectations and in the policies of the school. Um, so I think that was one of the big differences. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I've, I had a couple of experiences like that myself, actually. It's, um, I think of it as one of my own, I, I didn't know this before this interview, but that, that we shared this sort of experience of like noticing when you're young that there's kind of policy and that there's people that are deciding what you're being taught and that it can change. Um, and for me, the experience wasn't a, across different schools. It was from year to year. At one school I was going to, I realized, oh, like one year, literally, you know, it was the worst thing you could do to swear on the playground during recess. So there would be teachers out there wagging their finger at you or, you know, punishing you in some way for swearing. And then the next year, swearing was basically encouraged as a, an expression of freedom and, and you know, wild imagination and, and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is like I didn't have the word in my mind. Right. But this is arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, this is this is what I'm and I knew I knew it didn't just apply to the things I noticed changing. It applied to the things that would be same year for they could they could have been different. They could change at any time. Yep. There's there's people behind it and those people aren't authorities in fact on on this in in the sense that one would naively understand an authority to act you know they're just deciding and they're deciding based on whatever yes uh, <laughs> and i remember not 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 actually resenting it but just being kind of like huh well i guess that's what school is yeah um, <laughs> and it is it is it, it is very curious when you know to, to to notice like that that thing about the world um and so in uh in university, uh, you said you were at, um, I can see here from LinkedIn, you were at the Pacific University. Yeah. You studied politics and government, and then you went to, you did a graduate degree in political science. And then you, as you mentioned, you went into sort of, you became a public servant in Wisconsin. Uh, what was that change like from, from being a graduate student to being in, in government? I did something that I would never recommend anyone listening do, which is that I did them at the same time, even. I, oh I was actually in graduate school and I I, I got the bug for statistical programming and I had a, a statistics course that was required that I wasn't that interested in, but was required. And they forced us to use this open source tool at the time was pretty rough and ready called R. It's now a very popular statistical programming tool. Um, but at the time it was still a little uh, new and experimental and uh, there was no instruction given on how to do it. We just had to do all our homework using it. But I kind of took to that and enjoyed it. And uh, I, I was kind of given a choice that I could either work uh, as an intern in the governor's office, or I could work on a big uh, kind of experiment that was going on, that the university was running at schools across the country. And the experiment project didn't really strike my fancy, but this idea of getting to work in the governor's office, that sounded pretty interesting for me as a political scientist, a chance to see what it really looks like. And I was helping implement uh, an application for a federal fund. So I was just helping a team write a, an application. But I, I made a few graphs for the application and they really liked that. And they were like, oh, wow, like these graphs are useful. Um, and looking back now, you know, they, I could have done them in Excel or something. It wasn't ex anything really fancy, but they, they liked that. And, and they said, why don't you come do an internship at the state education agency? 
And I said, well, I, I'm not going to stop doing my degree. Uh, and they said, oh, we could probably work it out. And so I started off working part-time and then I started working full-time and doing my uh, graduate degree part-time and sort of just kind of transition. But I always had my foot in both of those worlds, uh, which was uh, a really interesting experience and really did shape a lot of the way I think about um, what Civilitics does now, uh, thinking about the importance of being that bridge between those uh, two different worlds and how they can help each other and, and the ways they can lose track of communicating with each other. And were you jealous of your fellow PhD candidates who didn't have full-time jobs? Well, uh, if you know anything in the U.S. about compensation, it's better, <laughs> it's much better to work for the government than it is to work at the, you know, to work at the university. Um, you get a much mm -hmm. fairer salary and benefits package. Um, so I, I, I did it. I, that was a motivating factor for me very much. And uh, this, I guess this is a bit of a detail, but um, so did you teach yourself programming in R? Uh, I mean, you said you took a course on statistics. I mean, so they must have given you some introduction. There was some introduction. And then I, I did pursue several courses in my method sequence and, and then went beyond it to, to keep taking courses that sometimes the instructors were good and were interested in teaching us. Our other times they were just giving us material and kind of throwing us the goal and saying, get to the goal and then giving you the space to learn it. So uh, I, I took things in, in many different branches so that I could fall, I could learn how to use R to do different things like geospatial statistics and multi-level models and all kinds of different tools that just kind of allowed me that space to learn. And were there um, like online courses and stuff available to you at the time that you were aware of? Or? I made an online course, so it was pretty early days. Oh. Uh, I, I, I made the, this R for education researchers because I was trying to help other government agencies adopt R. Um, because the license fees for statistical software can be a real barrier to uh, departments being able to adopt those tools. That's less of a problem now, I think. Um, so I, I mostly used books, um, uh, key, some key books, and uh, a lot of hands-on time at work being able to, luckily my supervisor gave me the space to really solve a problem well and use R to do it and then learn from that experience. You mentioned um, you made some charts that people really liked, and um, I saw, uh, preparing for this interview, I watched an interview or, or a talk that you gave a few years ago. It's on YouTube. Um, I'll put a link to it in the, in the transcription, where you show one, I mean, a number of charts that you do, and you explain, I think, very well the role of the, um, I guess, let's say, public servant in the education sector and, and the way that, like, what you're primarily doing is trying to advise people who make decisions. And so if you show them, say, a kind of work a chart that you're kind of working on to sort of figure out where to go that's not useful to them you need to show them a finished thing that makes a point and you have this really great chart where you show basically it's it's something along the lines of your you you, you tested a bunch of different models to see how well they'd work and which and then the, the idea was we've got we should probably choose one of these models going forward for predicting something like graduation rates or something like that and um if you had just shown the sort of line showing which one was more predictable, was better at predicting outcomes. And it's just sort of, you know, that that's the line that's higher on the chart than the lines that are lower than it. That would have been something. Uh, but what you did was you plotted it against how good at predicting outcomes the other systems across the country were. And you showed that the best model that you'd come up with intersected with the best performing one across the other states. And so when you show that chart to somebody, now they can go, uh, like, which one do you want to choose? Well, <laughs> I want to choose the one where I can tell people 
we're choosing this one because it's as good as the best in the country. And I was just wondering if you could talk about, did that, did that sort of awareness that that was what your job was come to you initially, or did you come to that over, over time? Definitely over time. That's definitely a hard fought, <laughs> hard won lesson of, of, you know, making, you know, I, I talk, I do a lot of training for data analysts, education data analysts, and that's where a lot of the ideas in the book come from too. And I think a big part of it for me was like, I did get this big initial win. Like people were interested in my charts. Like no one was interested in what I had to say before that. So I was like, came into the office and was like, well, I can make charts all day. Let's, uh, let's have interesting conversations. And what I realized is not everyone is interested in the charts, first of all. And second of all, it takes a lot of people to agree to make a decision in the end, uh, especially a consequential decision that's going to shape education policy. And so then it's about, well, the, you know, all those different folks need a way to make a decision and you have to sort of listen carefully to what they are interested in, what their perspective is, and try to really understand their position. So then you can come up with that chart and say, I think this solves uh, the, the questions that you have in a way that gives you the ability to now make a decision. And, and if we've done our work, that means that it looks very simple, the, the chart, um, but, at the, but it uh, sort of is the, the tail end of a lot of work of listening and, and identifying what is going to be the piece that makes it the decision uh, straightforward enough that everyone can feel comfortable about it, feel like it was a legitimate decision and feel like their perspective was considered in it. Yeah, and you make, you make a joke in the talk about how um, their decision in the end was kind of inevitable given the way you presented and structured the chart. Which, which, you know, on one level sounds manipulative, but when you, when you, when you, when you're clear that like, no, it's, this is the end result of a lot of work and careful consideration in the context for what the best outcome is. And so what you're actually presenting is an, is an argument. Yeah. And it, I think it's clear, it's good to be explicit that it, it almost always is. And if you're making, you're doing data analysis for a purpose, it is for, it is an argument, you know, we're not just doing it to, to speculate or to just amuse ourselves. We, are going to choose to do something different, and so being explicit about that, it is an argument, and that 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 you should show people that they had their voice in it through the whole process. And I think that's a big part of what I had to learn was that everyone's going to cut if you show that chart and you didn't do the eight hours of listening with all the different stakeholders in the room and the different conversations with them, they're going to look at that chart very different than if they've had a conversation with you, they trust you, they know you heard their concerns and you showed them how you heard their concerns, then you present the chart and they're going to say, yeah, th great, this confirms what we were our, all of our best hopes and we feel comfortable with this and we're going to support this decision moving forward. It's interesting how, how granular the sort of situational awareness you need to have in situations like that is, uh, particularly even with respect to individual people, as you're saying, having listened to them. Um, I have a story I like to tell uh, from back in my investment banking days when I was putting together a chart showing some you know, projections for some revenues or something like that. And one of my colleagues said, that chart's too toothy. You can't show that to you know Martin, and I was like, "What do you mean? Like that's the that's the chart, like that's those numbers." And he's like, "No, no, no! Like change the scale on the y-axis so it's not so spiky." And I said, "No, this is the this is the scale that we use for projections of this kind, you know." And and I remember flicking to the next slide in the meeting, and this guy goes, "Why is it so toothy?" You know, I love that and word, too toothy. <laughs> Toothy, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I, I learned, like you know, of course, like you know, you, you say, like you know, uh, you you would say this is a different scale than usual, blah blah blah. And it was just, it wasn't that there was there was any sort of manipul manipulation, I would say, going on. It's just that people have their quirks, 
Uh, and actually those like you're doing data science, you're doing social science, but you're also doing people uh, when you're when you're doing something like that. And you need to keep those kind of things in mind. Um, but that leads me to ask a question. So one thing I've found um, is that often when you show people numbers and when you show them charts, they think what you're showing them is reality. And no matter how explicit you are about this is the result of a lot of analysis and conjecture and assumptions, there's a certain kind of person that just thinks, no, you've shown me reality. I'm going to go out and tell people this is how many, this is the proportion of kids that are going to graduate in five years. What do you do in your experience? What can you do in your experience that you've learned to help kind of mitigate that, that problem? Yeah, I actually think there's, it's a two-sided problem because there's, and I spent most of my early career worried about the other flip side of the coin, which is people who, no matter how much data and evidence you show them, they're going to go with their gut, you know? Mm. And like, I, I, I think both, both attitudes toward data are very, I can be dangerous in an organization of, you know, either we're not going to listen to data because we, we have a lot of good intuition or gut or historical knowledge, and we're going to stick with what's always worked, or like, we're going to do whatever the data says, the next step is always going to be determined by whether the bar graph went up or down or whatever our KPI is, and we're not going to step back and, and be critical. And so, you know, when we, when I, we kind of, uh, talk about with clients about data strategy, that's like one of the most important things I talk to them about is it feels good as a data analyst to talk to the people who are like, well, thank you for that. We are going to, you know, do X because you recommended X. Like you can get caught up in that and you might not actually be doing the, the service that you want to be doing because actually as a data analyst, the uh, you know all of the reasons why there are asterisks after those figures and what the threats to the validity of the analysis are. And you need to have some very clear responsibility about how to communicate that part of it as well. And we don't really have like a bullet graph that's really cool to show people how sort of uncertain to be about whether or not we're even counting the thing we want to measure correctly. So I think, you know, it's, it's having as a data as a data scientist thinking about your, uh, you, you holding the knowledge of the whole process of how the data gets collected to the analysis to the reporting and being able to communicate and weigh all of what you've learned through that whole process as a holistic result, instead of saying the KPI is seven. And so that, you know, we already predetermined that if it was seven, we would do X. And if it was six, we would do Y. You know, you, you, that sounds efficient, but uh, unless everything else is right and tight, you don't want to be making decisions that way. Your um, uh, dissertation topic I see here was school boards and the democratic promise. This was, uh, I think you finished it in 20, 2015. School boards and the democratic promise, I suppose, have, are very topical these days. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your, what your thesis was, was about. Sure. I, I have to reach back into my mind. I, I don't talk about it very much actually anymore, but my... There's like a there's like a fundamental tension in political science about like how do we measure what is a democratic government, right? So, you know, you you'll if you went to civics in the United States, you know, oh, the United States isn't a democracy; it's a republic, which is like one step back from a democracy because we don't vote on the laws ourselves or whatever. And political scientists have a lot of different ways of categorizing and thinking about how democratic is a sort of institution or government of any kind. Um, and one of the things that you kind of learn is the amount that people participate really is important. So if you, you know, you have free and fair elections, but only 10% of people vote, 
then people might say it's in theory a democracy, but it's actually not a democracy because only 10% of people are making the decision. So that's a, this is an academic debate. And, you know, we, United States doesn't have great voter participation across the board, but we have particularly abysmal voter participation for local elections. And in, in Wisconsin at the time, our school board elections were off cycle. So they were not on the standard you know, presidential governor cycle, they were in the spring. And so they were even lower turnout. But there was an event that happened in, while I was in Wisconsin where the governor changed the power that school boards had and gave them a lot more power over their workers and basically made them able to overrule any union bargaining agreements with teachers. So now school boards were really important because if you put in a, a school board that was in favor of the teachers at that moment, you could protect all of the workers' rights that teachers had won. And if you put in a school board that was uh, sort of in favor of the new law, you could re drastically reshape the way teachers were compensated and really enact a lot of reforms that were not possible under collective bargaining before. So there was this moment where the school board was really critical, but it was still off cycle. So the, my, my theory was to test whether or not voters were aware of that. Um, we had a a special governor election to make them aware that this was an issue. So they were aware of it. Uh, and then did that affect how people behaved in the school board election? Did more people run for school board? Did more people lose their seats in school board? So did they turn over more voters than, than pre more board members than before? And did, was there higher participation? And the answer is that, yeah, there, there kind of was. We did see a spike. Uh, so the idea is that perhaps uh, normally school boards aren't that democratic, but maybe when things are really important to the voters, they still have, there's no barriers to them really participating. And so they can express their democratic will. I wouldn't be comfortable saying it was a conclusive study of that. And I wouldn't believe that it was, uh, you know, I don't think that that's necessarily true, but I think it did show that a lot of times in political science, we kind of think of school boards as not very democratic um, but I think they're more, maybe more democratic and there's more ways to think about it than the mainstream political science at the time had really been thinking about them. Um, so that was a way to sort of test the electoral nature of school board politics. I'm really curious, did this change, this change in the law give the school boards more opportunity to kind of basically tell teachers what to teach? And you mentioned specifically it was kind of compensation and things like that, but did that give them, that's obviously a powerful lever. Did, was that a concern that people have? Or was that, was that a, a thing that, that they a power that those school boards then actually had? And not in the specific context of Wisconsin. School boards do have that power, but the power was really focused on compensation, leave, um, sort of uh, professional development time, things that were costing money because the school districts were in a fiscal crisis across the state because of the Great Recession. And so it, it, at the time, the, the new powers were really, everyone was really focused on their, the reason to put them into place was to save the budgets of all the school districts. Um, and so that was the frame that it was in. Although you can, of course, imagine school, school districts do have in some states and like Wisconsin, wide latitude on the curriculum that they teach. Um, and so that is, I would imagine, another place where we would see this issue sort of come to the forefront. It's uh, it's so interesting talking about things like this for me personally, coming from Canada and uh, you know having lived in in the UK, uh, sort of American kind of administrations kind of break my break all my instincts, right? Because you know it, it's just sort of unthinkable, generally right. speaking, in Canada to think about like the local school board having 
wide latitude over the curriculum or people being, I mean, I'm not, not actually exactly sure how it works, but you know, you can't elect sheriffs in Canada. Yeah. You can't elect judges. I mean, I spoke to a friend in, in Michigan once she was working on a campaign for someone to become district attorney or something like that. And um, she told me that someone running to be a judge can actually ask for campaign contributions from lawyers that might appear before them as a judge. Do you think that school boards, I mean, I mean, you don't have to tell me your opinion on this if you don't want to, because I know it's your space, but you know, do you, in an ideal world, do you think that positions like that should be democratic at all? I think it's really tricky. I, I mean, when the chips are down, when, when, you know, there's, you can find ways that the idea of federalism, which is what we're sort of talking about, it doesn't work because you can find, you know, very compelling examples where the local decision-making has sort of gone off the rails and it's sort of become tyrannical. That's how, what I experienced as a high school student. I, like the high school I went to, you know, I was in a small town in Montana and they drug searched our lockers with drug dogs like every three weeks. And it's like, if you want to do drugs in Montana, the last place you do it is at school. You've got hundreds of miles of empty space in every direction. Like it was just a, a show of force by the school board. It was a decision they wanted to sort of send a message to the students for whatever reason, right? And there's much worse things that happen in uh, where school boards are making really bad decisions like that, that you kind of get that raise up to the news, right? So that, that, that's easy to say when that happens, like, yeah, this is not a great idea, right? But then you flip, take the flip side, right? And you have a president like Donald Trump. And, you know, not to be too political, but if you don't agree with what he's doing and he's a powerful leader, you have your locally elected school board, which can resist because they have their own legitimate authority. And so it's it's not a great system on either end of the scale, but it's it is sort of designed to be that relief valve when you sort of disagree with what the other levels of government are doing. It's much easier to get on the school board to participate in a school board race than it is to get to the state legislature or get to the national legislature. And so I think that 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 is why the fundamental tension really just is fascinating to me because I, I feel in myself, you know, if the if the education leaders were going to make the decisions I'm going to make, then I, you know, I don't want them to be elected. Let's just have them be unelected. But if I'm in a position where they're not making the decisions I would make, an election is a great way. It's not too difficult to get my friends and I organized and to try to change things by getting people on the school board. And so I, I don't have a good answer. I think it's one of the great questions posed by the American system. Yeah, that, no, that, thank you for that really great answer. I mean, you, you captured the sort of paradox that, you know, the inescapable paradox of, of, of sort of, you know, um, you know, tyranny versus, versus agency, right. you know, very well. And, and it's, it's one of the things that really preoccupies me. I mean, that kind of thing that you're describing, for example, where there are people who are nominally grown adults who are exercising this totally arbitrary power for its own sake to intimidate children and get the rush of, of feeling like an authority over, over them. That's the kind of agency that really, really bothers me. And like, it's, it's sort of like, this is also a kind of a sort of, this is a very high level kind of observation, right? But if you have, if you have an organization that's nominally for, exists for one purpose, but it has a certain kind of ethos, that ethos is going to attract people who are attracted to that ethos, not whatever the, the institution actually exists to do. So for example, if you have a very hierarchical top-down management structure in your company, it doesn't matter if you're making socks or if you're making you know, 
guns, you're going to attract the kind of person who likes being in a top-down hierarchical organization, yeah. whether that means being at the top or at the bottom. You're going to have, and you're going to attract the kind of person who just enjoys having underlings to order around. Yep. And and if you have a situation where people understand that, you know, I was elected to exercise my personal will for me. I was elected, not not appointed as part of a, an administration or an organization, but actually it's me. And you look around and you have this the gaze of power upon the people around you. That's just something that like I, really bothers me. But there's the other, but again, the other side of it is like there's people who think, well, that's what everyone in a position of authority is doing. Yes. The the, the very concept that you could just be a kind of like featureless person who's simply there as a representative of an organization. Just there, some people just don't believe that that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the like one way that we do try to square the circle in America is we do like in education specifically, we do have state education agencies which are charged with sort of setting parameters within which school districts can be free. So that state constitutions for the most part give the state the decision about how to organize schools and they defer a lot of that to districts. But there's a lot of power struggles between districts and states and they do different things differently. And that relationship sort of ebbs and flows as it did while I was in Wisconsin and continues to do. So I, that, I think that part of it does also make it, you know, the, the promise there is that, well, we, if things get too far out of hand and you, you are stuck in a community that you just can't get enough people on the school board to change things, you can, you know, make a, a legal case that your rights are being violated and you can be protected that way from a higher level of government. Or you can uh, get state, the state to uh, pass laws to change or set boundaries on what the school districts are allowed to do. And that I think is why I think we're always thinking we're gonna do a school education reform and then we did it and now we're gonna see how it worked. But it's actually that it's a continuous cycle of sort of balancing the power between the different levels. Uh, especially between states and districts. And, and I think it's, it's very tricky to keep an eye on. Um, since we're only asking easy questions yeah. in this uh, interview, um, I thought I'd ask another easy one, which is, um, you know, there's, there's actually, there's, I mean, there's obviously a big education controversy going on in the States right now, particularly with, you know, primary and secondary schools. Yes. And there's, there's, there's one in, there's one in actually in the province of Alberta and Canada right now as well, where, um, and this, again, this is, you know, the, the sort of province, the provincial government is, proposing uh, sort of, you know, province-wide curriculum that would have to be taught everywhere and the teachers and, and lots of parents are pushing back on various features of it. You know, there's, there's, you know, the sort of, there's the high politics and then there's the like, should math be rote memorization in grade one, you know, like that, that kind of thing. And I guess the question I, I want to ask is, um, why isn't it a sort of sufficient solution for some people to just say, tell your kids don't believe everything they hear <laughs> in school? Yeah, like why? because because for me that would that way I mean like I was saying in my story like this is a big big part of my own origin story was like learning and not not in a negative or a kind of reactionary way I just learned oh school's kind of an arbitrary place why why is it not and why is it that some people don't want that to be the answer that you can just tell your kids just don't believe everything you hear in school yeah I don't, I don't know about I mean I bet that is how most people are acting I I feel like a lot of the education debate is about sort of intentionally, you know, trying to charge up issues and raise them up to be a lot more, have a lot higher volume than they do. The real issues in, in education, uh, you know, don't get this much attention, right? The, the real core issues of 
you know, funding and access to extracurriculars and, you know, the, the, the de decisions about like, should we be teaching kids computer science instead of trigonometry for a year, right? And, and like, are our schools sites of economic training or are they sites of cultural training? And, and how much is that balance? Those are like core issues that I think really do, most people do think about and have really strong opinions about their schools. And then these other issues sort of become ways, I think, for partisan politics to kind of get pushed down onto uh, something that people care. Everyone cares about education because everyone went through it. And so it's a really good way to connect emotionally with people as a political strategy to say, hey, you know, schools aren't like how they were when you were a kid and you either really like that or you really don't. And how and I'm going to try to put that into a partisan spin so that you'll vote for me for a different level of government that's not really deeply involved. And there's a lot of really interesting research about schools resistant, like school teachers resistance to when these partisan things sort of get pushed. So when there is a curriculum mandated, but the sort of teachers as professionals say, this curriculum isn't really that good, I'm going to work around it or sort of hide it, right? And there's a long history of that in the profession of teaching and studies of that. And I think those things are sort of how these things actually wind up playing out. And I think the mindset you're sort of talking about is both a mindset that I think school officials might take, like don't believe everything the legislature tells us is required, or wink, nudge, let's move on. And I think that, that parents often, yeah, with their kids are probably saying like, yeah, you know, you've got to kind of just go along with this one with the school. And I think that does a disservice, right? Because of what you said about the ethos and the culture, like what is that, you know, how does that sort of play out? But I think it's how it does play out in, in reality in a lot of cases, but we just, that's not as good of a, a news story. I'm going to try and do a sort of segue from the, the, the sort of, you know, 30,000 feet to the real sort of like in the, in the mud kind of um, stuff. Uh, but have you ever read um, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life by Richard Hofstadter? I think I've probably read a, a, a excerpt from it in in a political theory class, but it's been a while. Yeah, well, and the and the book's been, the book is quite old, yeah. now, you know, from the nineteen sixties. But I read it a little while ago, and you know, a lot of it read like it had been written, you know, the other day. But um, he's got a really really great chapter in there about the history of education in the United States, and it was I just remember when I read it, it was such a sort of like you know bucket of cold water about the fact that actually mass education, the fact that, as you said, everybody has to go through it. This is a recent thing in human history, yes. like very recent. Um, and in fact, really mass education, particularly in the United States, really only started in the early, very early 20th century. And, um, and at that time, it was tackling very particular problems in certain places where the big the, like administrations started to appear, like in, in New York, where there were a lot of immigrants, yes. for example. And you had, you had to teach people like not only, you know, Shakespeare, but home ec, you know, and, you know, just how to live, how do you live in this urban environment in this new, new life? Um, and with, you know, new technologies like sewerage and, and, and electricity and, and things like that, there were all sorts of really practical matters, but the, essentially we're, we're still in the beginning of the experiment. And really we're, we're now in this stage where we have sort of technologies and things like that, where we can gather and process and visualize data in a way that 
we couldn't before. So we're, we're still at the beginning, but we're kind of at maybe at the end of the beginning or something like that, if you want to be romantic about it, yeah. this great experiment. Um, and so, and you've been, you've been, you know, a part of that. Um, and you uh, did work on something called an early warning system, part of your work for the, the state government, I believe. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, and you've got a chapter about it in, in your second book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what an early warning system is and the one that you worked on and how, how one can build an early warning system in an education uh, department. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good segue. Uh, so <laughs> hats off to you. Um, because the early warning system is at the other end, right? It's about solving administrative challenges and sort of making the sort of education system, you know, more, uh, have fewer, pro like, I guess it's, I tell people it's kind of a safety net for the education system. A lot of people want to think of it as very prescriptive, but what I learned in doing it, um, I think is that it's more of a, a tool to augment the existing work in the way we use a lot of other tools to augment work. So just really briefly in the, in the Wisconsin example, which is what I build the, the chapter in the book around, but I advise other people on developing similar systems as part of civilitics now in education and elsewhere. And the idea is of the, in education of an early warning system is that if we, we, we are generating data from students, students are giving us information. Uh, we have data systems to collect that information. What we want, we want to do is get a sense of whether a student is quote unquote on track to meet some ob objective or goal that we have as an education system. The, the sort of easiest one to think of is just graduating with a diploma um, in high school. And so it's, uh, you know, students who are less likely to graduate, they start to exhibit behaviors that put them on a track that they're not going early. And schools typically have many ways to identify this, but an early warning system is another way to do that sort of at scale uh, by using a limited set of information that we have about every student and building a statistical model that determines whether or not that student is going to, is likely to complete on time or not complete on time and then communicate that information to someone who can help uh, change that outcome from uh, potentially a, a negative outcome to a positive outcome of, of them completing on time. And the idea is that we know from research that it's much harder to take a 17-year-old who's about to not graduate and move them to being a graduate. That's an intensive, it takes a lot of intensive intervention. School systems, uh, you know, some of them are, are okay at this, others really struggle with it. It's much easier to gently uh, improve the way the student interacts with the school system from say grade five on and try to improve the school system to better serve those types of students at the same time. It gives us a longer chance uh, to sort of improve things. There's risks associated with early warning systems. Um, and so that's one of the things that it really matters, the sort of context that it's built into. You have to be very careful about how people are going to use it and who has access to it and how it is, is sort of kept up to date and kept current, which is a lot of what the chapter in the second book covers. Um, but the idea is that uh, schools make these judgments all the time. They have to, to do their jobs. And this is a, a way to support that judgment to say, just in case, just quickly check this list and see if you uh, don't have a plan or a strategy to help any of these students who you might've missed because the pattern of behavior that they're showing is a little subtle or you just didn't have, you had too much on your plate. So it's sort of a safety net for professional educators to, to feel like, okay, we, we also can check this resource uh, to make sure we're serving all the students we need. It's just such a difficult job. I mean, you know, I only know it from the outside having been a student, but 
you know, I can, when you mentioned risks, you know, one, one might think, oh, what's the risk of an early warning system? And it's like, well, a self-fulfilling prophecy, yes. um, you know, that's one. Uh, and another is um, angry parents. Yes. You know, you're saying my, my kid's smart. What are you saying? My kid's dumb. Uh, and now all of a sudden that might make it, make the outcome that you're trying to avoid more likely, yes. you know, in, in, an, in, in it's another version of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and I, I guess uh, one, one question I have is if so we talk early warning system, you know, I, I live in a, you know, tsunami zone. Yeah. Right? So to me, early warning system is like my phone goes off and it's like, oh no, knock on wood. When we're, we're talking about this in sort of the like 2021 and the kind of early warning system you talk about in your chapter in the book, is this like a teacher gets an email like saying, boom, our system says that, you know, Joe is, is now at stage one of difficulty or do you provide them with a series of sort of metrics that they can check student performance against? And so the teacher themselves says, oh, oh it looks like this student might be falling into a bad pattern. It's really interesting in right now where we are. Um, so dues, the Wisconsin dropout early warning system, I, I, I started working on in 2013. And I think we, you know, as a team, we, we pushed it out around 2015. So um, that was, you know, it's hard to believe, but it does for me, like the technology then is very different than the technology now, which is just wild to think about. But, but I think people are really innovating on these. So there are systems or there are school systems using tools where they, they are trying to give more real-time alerts. Uh, there are um, places where they're just giving like a report. Um, in the case of dues, this will get into mud a little bit here. Uh, Wisconsin, the state had data very, our data came very slow. So school districts would report everything about their students to us twice a year. So we, we had two time points a year at which we got new information about students. And we had, uh, we had a number of mechanisms to report information back to schools, but not to the teacher level. So we could report something to a principal, but we couldn't report something to a specific teacher at the time. But what we learned, we did a bunch of user interviewing and presenting about this idea at conferences with educators. And we're like, you know, we're thinking of doing this. I think we can do it pretty accurately, but we don't know how to communicate it to you or like what would be useful. And they said, oh, you know, at the beginning of the year, we often sit down and like think about how are we going to help different students? And we do that for like all of our, we try to do it for all of our students. And sometimes, you know, we, we are looking through that list and we look at their past performance. We look at how they did last year, what their grades were. So if you could give us a list at the beginning for that meeting, we could bring that to that meeting and we could incorporate that information into it. So we wrote a guide on how to interpret the information. We did a pilot uh, with um, several schools to show them that information and uh, kind of got their feedback about what that would be. And then what, what was unfortunate for me, again, getting into the mud is that the, the first data was very, uh, was preliminary data. So I had to build a sort of a secondary early warning system to make the prediction on time to be useful for them in that process. And then we would send them an update later in the year to say, these are the students who changed after we got the final data. So maybe that information is helpful. But they told us, if you don't tell us at the beginning of the year, it's going to go into an inbox and we're not going to be able to sort of put it into this process that we have. Um, and so that was really eye-opening for us to think about that. And I think there's now a lot of innovation about how to do that. I think there's a real risk of like over, it, with the early warning system, if, you, if your phone went off about the tsunami every week, when the tsunami finally came, you might not run, right? And so you have to be really careful about what sort of that behavior 
winds up being. And I think we're just at the beginning of starting to think about that, like human computer interaction, interacting with our sort of professional job, especially a professional job, like being a teacher. And like, how does that sort of cumulatively wind up? Is it going to be like the notifications on my phone where I just stop paying attention after a certain point? Cause I can't get them to go away. You know, we want to, we want to be thinking about that. I think that's the, what the field I think is going to be trying to work on in the, in the future. You know, I hadn't thought about that before. I think I think you've written somewhere about you know having too much data and how that how that can be a problem. This is a problem that data scientists sort of like semi sort of backhanded complain about. You know, I've got too much data, damn it. Yeah. Um, but but providing teachers with too much data or, or or like and it's the same thing with you know the sort of people who are making the policy decisions too. Like it needs to be informative and thoughtful about the context in every touch point. Yeah. And it comes back to really I what I had to learn what I really why the dues project will always be special to me is like really spending time thinking about just the the professional skill that the principals and the counselors and the teachers bring to their job like my algorithm is adding something, but it's adding a lot less than I thought it was when I started because they are and I would tell them this like they hold in their heads a very sophisticated processing system for identifying when students are in trouble and how to reach out to them. And so it's really about how do we fit a system in that augments that or improves it or protects them against, you know, a, a mistake or helps them check, you know, feel more effective, right? And to, to maximize the real the really powerful part of the education system, which is the educators interacting with students. And, and the one way that that really came home for me is one of the people on our design team who, who worked with me on designing it, she showed me once a spreadsheet she used as a principal. And she made a spreadsheet that was like our early warning system. And she scored the students and she ranked them. And she would, you know, and she would spend hours typing the data into the spreadsheet and then getting her results. And she was like, if all you did was replace the spreadsheet, so I had those hours back, like that's going to be a really big step forward for us. Because I felt like I needed to do this spreadsheet to be sure to like feel comfortable that we're doing everything we can. But I also was the one who had to do it. And so when she told me that, I was like, that is really where it slots in. Uh, it's maybe not as meaningful as I think some people want to imagine it is. But it's also a very, it can be a very powerful part of the system. And once it's built, like any data science product, it scales really well. So we're making, in Wisconsin, they're making hundreds of thousands of predictions a year for school systems that have no capacity to set up a system like that for themselves. My next easy question is about standardized testing. <laughs> I remember having an experience in school once when I was all of a sudden, I had no idea what was coming. And all of a sudden, I was given a, a standardized test. Um, and I sort of like, I had to figure out, oh, you have to fill out circles. Okay. And, you know, so like they had to figure out how to do the test, you know, and before I could even sort of get to answering the questions. And in the end, the results came back and I was told I should be an accountant. Uh -huh. And, and I was in like grade eight and I was like, I didn't have the words, but it was like, fuck you mm -hmm. to the, to the, to the, to the test. And whoever was telling me that not, no, no offense to accountants uh, out there, uh, it meant at all, but you know, it, it was, it was basically, I think, and it was because I finished it so fast. And it was just this, again, like I didn't have the word, but it was such an arbitrary yeah. conclusion to come to, right? You know, you're, you're, you're fast at filling out forms, so you should be an accountant. And it's like, there's the real insult to accountants, right? Like, you know, there's, it's actually a really complex job, mm -hmm. um, you know, that involves a lot of creativity and things like that. And I guess just my general question, if you were sitting at a pub and, you know, you know your new brother-in-law found out what you do and he asked you, you know, what do you think of standardized testing? What would, what would you say? 
I think they 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 serve a, a function and the they are used in ways that is far from the function that they serve today. And one of the things I grapple with very much is like when we when that happens. So I, I think standardized tests are overused. Kids are tested way too much, and way too much is put on the stuff that it can be tested compared to the stuff that cannot be tested. And I, I really empathize with education officials who feel like they're really under a lot of pressure to, to sort of make this magic box uh, produce the numbers that need to be produced for them to, to sort of justify what they're doing. I, I do think that that is a, a challenge, a, a very big challenge. What I worry about is, so, so could we go back to using them sort of more justly or more fairly? I don't know. Like I, we we got the power and we used it wrong. Like it, it just sort of has devolved. So what's to stop us from? We okay. We start. We reset the way we use standardized testing. We try to go back to using it for informational purposes, for sort of measuring long-term performance, and for thinking about using it to validate other things that we know about schools. Well, won't we just creep back into the same patterns and start using tests to test how we're going to do on the test? And I guess I feel particularly conflicted because the standardized test in Wisconsin was very, very useful for that early warning system predictor. It does a very good job of helping us find out whether students are on track to graduate, not in the way you think. You don't have to do very well on the test to be on track to graduate. But if you did very poorly on the test, that is a very clear signal that the school system is not doing a good job to find out how to help students in that situation find a path to success. The problem is that we kind of maybe put that on the student and their family as like, well, they should do better on the test. Instead of thinking about actually what the test is supposed to be telling us is that as a school system, we're not finding a way to connect and to make this experience meaningful and productive. And I think a big part of that comes down to resources. And I think a big problem about standardized testing is that they're sort of what we're seen as a powerful tool to sort of chip away at the resources schools have instead of a tool to help us say, where do we need to put more resources into the school system? And so if we're going to have a subtractive mentality about it, I wouldn't want to keep using standardized tests, but I do find there is probably a way that they could be used that would be okay. Uh, you've brought up money and funding a couple of times in in the in, in this interview, um, and it is it is fascinating how contentious that can be, particularly in particularly in education, uh, not and not just you know sort of kindergarten to grade twelve, but also in higher education as well. I remember, I think it was in the early in the early aughts uh, in the UK, a system was brought in to sort of forget what it was called now, but it was to assess professors. And it was because people wanted, they wanted to know where's our money going, yeah. right? And you need to show me some number in the end, right? And I say this aggressively and angrily because it was, it's a bullshit mentality. Uh, and what, what all of a sudden profs had to do was start get tabulating their mentions. And, and so how many times is the paper site, is the paper that they, how many uh -huh. papers have they published? How many papers have they published multiplied by the rank? assigned to the journal that they're published in, and then how many times have you been cited? The research assessment exercise, I think it was called, something like that. And all of a sudden, profs are spent, and you, you mentioned before, the, the, the teacher who now, who's spending all the time doing the spreadsheet, you know, doing analysis that hopefully someone else who's, and who, whose job is analysis could do instead. Now, all of a sudden, you had a bunch of like, you know, professors doing all this kind of analysis, and again, the completely arbitrary system that's there, basically, so a politician could say at the end of the day, we should be paying always what the goal is, is we should be paying profs less, yes. uh, you know, because they're not getting cited enough and they're not publishing enough, those, those 
you know, lazy jerks. And I guess, I don't know if that's, I mean, maybe this is just one of those other paradoxes, right? If, if a public school system is, you know, coming from taxation and it's being given to teachers to do a job, there's going to be someone somewhere who's like, show me the results. I think public performance management is something I'm very fascinated by because, you know, you could poll 100 people in your town and they'll give you 100 different answers of what the school system's supposed to do. So it's, you know, it's not like a publicly traded company where we're supposed to return value to the shareholders. Like, at least we can all agree that's what we're here to do. But when we walk into a school building, you know, we're here to make kids feel safe and supported. We're here to help them express themselves. We're here to make sure they're prepared for the economy. And how do you measure all of those things? You can't measure all of those things. Actually, I think that's a really great, that's a really great um, analogy or, or sort of comparison, right? Because I mean, when you think about some of the most successful companies in the world right now, uh, Amazon and Tesla, both famously didn't make any money for a really long time. Yeah. And there, there was sort of the, the sort of ordinary kind of like stock analyst who's like, why would anyone ever invest in this business? It's never tur turned a profit. And it's like, well, now, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Right. Uh, because they could keep the long term in mind. And the reason I bring up that, that specific example is that there's, an, there's something, I think it's, it might be in the province of Ontario here in Canada, where the provincial government was suggesting that they wanted to have a policy where funding to public funding to universities would be partially based on employment outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and, and the idea being, I mean, borrowing from a discourse that I think is authentic and good, that's critical of basically scam universities yes. that are like, you know, basically you pay a lot of money or you borrow a lot of money to go there and then you're unemployable at the end. Borrowing from that legitimate discourse, they went taken to want to take that and apply it illegitimately to legitimate universities and say, well, you know, you you guys who are like teaching like English literature, you know, you're you're scamming people, right? What and and let we're gonna we're gonna try and catch you so we can cut your funding by saying what proportion of your students actually have jobs within four years of graduating and how, and specifically how much money are they making? And it's like, well, if you, if you judged the performance of a university by let's say, let's say graduation rates, right? Yeah. Well, Harvard really scammed Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. you know, uh, right. you know, uh, you know, and Bill Gates, you know, wherever he went, you know, um, uh, and, and, uh, or didn't go. Um, and, um, you know, this idea of, of assessment, I just, you know, this is my, my public service announcement to anyone listening, like be very wary when people start trying to impose um, assessments of education outcomes based on, you know, things that seem straightforward, like employment and how much money you make. I mean, I studied English literature and I'm, I ended up in investment banking. Yeah, right. You know, uh, does that, by, by the, the sort of, but the, the sort of assessment that I'm talking about would ascribe failure to the University of Oxford for having trained me in English and taken all my money when I didn't get a job in English. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, one of my, 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 rant. my rant. Sorry, I'm sure you get those of, all the time. <laughs> yeah. My fa my favorite thing, like that, there's a book by Deborah Stone called policy paradox. And I think it's probably the greatest political science book ever written. I, I really mm. hope uh, she hears me say that someday because it, you can open up to any chapter and it sort of talks about all of these, these sort of issues about, well, when we want to try to measure performance, there's a political purpose to that. And there are people who are going to win and lose from that sort of strategy. And there are people who, who have legitimate complaints and people who have Ill, like complaints that are fit made up that are false. They're crying crocodile tears. And she just like does a lot. She looks at these problems from many different lenses and shows you like how and why they sort of are so difficult to disentangle. 
and why, you know, it does seem like what starts out as a well-meaning policy, which I think 90% of people would agree, like scam universities are a problem and we don't want to have them, can be shaped and used to uh, make real universities start to function in ways that we would not find optimal or useful or productive to society. And I think, you know, that's also one of those sort of big fundamental paradoxes of making decisions about public goods. Uh, just moving on, we've been talking for about an hour now. So just uh, moving on to the next part of the interview where we talk about uh, the sort of the, the, the writing and the production of your book. So the, the, there's two books in the series now, Education Data Done Right, and there's a website that we'll link to in the transcription about, about this project. Uh, what was the sort of origin story of, of this project? Was it was it you and a bunch of colleagues were sitting around saying, you know, we've got all this knowledge that we can share, and but no one sort of is publishing at the kind of meta level about about what we do? So yeah, Wendy, DJ, and I, we met at the, we're the three authors on the first book and the editors and authors uh, um, on the second volume. And we, we met at a conference and we were all trained as social scientists sort of in this very academic tradition, but found ourselves drawn to this very practical work of working in government. And we were at a meeting for government data analysts to sort of talk and share ideas and talk about data systems and how we do our work. But the meetings mostly tended to focus around really IT stuff, which is critical. And we have a love letter to IT professionals in the first uh, book uh, chapter on why they're important and what's really great. But there wasn't space to talk about how to do be an analyst, including making friends with the IT department. So we were coming out of this academic training where the concept of data is like a data set that was been carefully collected and manicured and perfectly laid out like a bonsai tree that you would then analyze. Um, and, and the data we were dealing with is sort of just like data that's coming off of these systems that are trying to, to work every day and they have different conflicting definitions. And so we were like, we weren't really trained for this. And what a lot of people who do what we do or, or think what do we do, they want to talk about what we're doing because administrative data was a very popular academic topic at the time in education research. But they've never sat inside these rooms where we're arguing about how in this year, all of this data in this one column is a little dodgy because we had a mistake on the form that we collected it in. And like, what does that mean for the rest of the analysis? So these kinds of issues, which to us all seem very fundamental of like that affects the downstream work much more than, uh, than people want to sort of think. We're like, well, there's gotta be some book about this or some ideas about how to, to do this job. And we, you know, there are, there's some stuff in other fields that we found inspiring, but we, we found there's a lot of books about education data science that start with, you now have your data set. Here's how to run <laughs> a neural network on it. And we're like, well, there's a lot of things you might want to check before you run that neural network, including like who made the data set and what was their agenda. And so we, we put the book together, the first book together, and it really focused on, I think, the like data preparation uncovering errors and being really thoughtful about documenting that. And sort of what I think is the really great work that, for example, a really great statistical agency like the US Census Bureau is very thoughtful about. They have very good procedures about that, but they're also not super public about everything they do because they have to protect confidentiality of every person in the country. So, but I'm, I know they have really good procedures. We need to bring that sort of professionalism and standard to the education data work happening in state education agencies and school districts as they're building these more and more complicated data systems. And so that's really the origin story. 
And um, the first book, I believe, was published in 2019. Yes. Um, and and you, uh, you you collectively chose to self-publish it, I believe, and it was it was on Amazon, uh, and at least, and, and presumably elsewhere as well. Uh, was there a reason that you and your, your co-authors decided to self-publish as opposed to maybe approaching a, an education publisher or something like that? I think there's two reasons. One is we wanted to go quickly at the time. So we had a set in 2019, we had a sort of we all kind of had this moment, like, I think I can work on this right now. We want to move really quickly. And so we wanted, we, we found, I was really energized by the idea of self-publishing because I was like, well, we actually know the people we're writing this book for. It's some, most of them, a lot of them personally. And like, we can really find this and put this in their hands on our own. And we just don't want it. We don't need to deal with the timeline of a publisher, finding a publisher and I also don't, I'm not interested in trying to make it ship, shape into some sort of publisher's narrative or fit in their portfolio of books. You know, I knew what, what, I, what I, I knew, and I think DJ and Wendy, we knew what, what chapters would be really helpful. And we were like, let's just put them together, bundle it up. And our longer term vision was we want other people to, to write chapters. And then we can, we wanted to be the ones to put their words out and to share because we knew a lot of our colleagues were super smart. Three of them joined us for the next book and had really great ideas and, and would benefit the field to hear from them and for them to get the space to really show what they do. Because uh, unlike academics who have to, you know, get their, their reference scores up to make sure they meet their metrics. Uh, there's not a lot of like sort of professional cachet for publishing for education data researchers in education agencies. Um, but some of them still really want to do that and they feel a sense of sort of community and contributing to, to community. So self-publishing seemed like it would allow us to sort of, if we were lucky and people, the book resonated, that people could be able to contribute to it as well and feel more part of the process than if we had to go through a big publisher. This is the part of the uh, podcast, we, we save it for the end, where we get into the weeds about sort of writing and the, the process of putting books together and stuff. And I was, I was curious what, what tools you use, you decided to use to actually make the ebook files in the end that you, that you published. Yeah, so I think this is also where co-authoring is tricky, right? So, uh, you know, I've already worn on my sleeve in this interview that I'm an R guy. So I, I wrote my, I could write my stuff in a plain text file, and then I would use the R bookdown package to package up the ebook files. And, um, you know, in the R bookdown community, they are big fans of LeanPub, and there are many LeanPub books that come out of the R bookdown package, and people have, have really lifted up LeanPub as a really great place to put that and that's how I found out about it and so I was like well let's do it this way and then uh, DJ and Wendy were kind of like R I, I just want to write a book so we wrote the and we wanted to write it together so we wrote most of the chapters as manuscripts in Google Drive and shared documents but then we did typeset it into R uh, I typeset it into R using R book down so that I could apply some formatting and I wrote my dissertation using latex so I was able to do a little more than the basic formatting, not too much, but a little bit. We got a designer to put the cover on it. And then I learned a lot about Mobi, EPUB and PDF files from, from that sort of process. It wasn't quite as plug and play as the sort of book down manual had led me to believe. But I do think that it was, um, in the end, it was a really uh, good process and the volume two went pretty smoothly um, using the same process. And did you hire editors? Did you ask people to volunteer to, to read 
read the chapters before they were put into the book? We, um, so we found colleagues who wanted to be part of the book, but were not uh, willing or comfortable, didn't have the time to be full on authors. And we said, well, could you be a reviewer? So we got for every chapter, we asked uh, a colleague in a similar role somewhere and we thanked them in the book to be sort of a content reviewer. Like, does this, you know, are we on the right path? Does this seem like it would help you in your job? And then we did, um, for volume one, we hired a, an editor who was a friend of Wendy's. And for volume two, um, I had a research assistant who served as our editor um, for our chapters. And then we each also got our own chapter edited. Um, it was a bit more, because um, there were six authors this time, we kind of were a little more diverse in the process. And um, I, was, I was very uh, intrigued to see in the, in the second book, I believe uh, you mentioned in the introduction that it's a it's a living document, which is which is for Lean Pub. You know that's our that's our favorite kind of book. Yeah, um, we love all we love all books. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what what you mean by that and what what your plan is is for the book. Well, well, what we hope is one, if people catch typos, that we can you know quickly cover those up and uh, you know submit a new file and have make sure people you know we're putting our best foot forward. Uh, and I find that's actually actually really great. Like that's an underrated value of self-publishing like once you put put it out with a publisher they're not going to want to do another run and fix your typos but you can you know cover that up it can get better and it's a great way to get engagement with the readers right people you like hey thanks you you know we can make a section that says thanks for these edits thanks for this person who caught the typos people can be part of the book even if they don't feel like they have maybe a whole chapter worth of something to say i think that's really powerful and I think the second thing is perhaps uh, whether it's in a volume three or if we add chapters to volume two over time, I think we're still thinking about that. But we do hope that people say this really fit with me. I'd like to share my experience about it. And then we can just keep adding that so that people get the uh, new content that, that comes out and they feel like, uh, you know, because in our, in our case, like I said, I can kind of picture the room of people who belong, this book belongs to. Uh, as well, which I think would make it a hard pitch to a publisher. The audience is, is small. Uh, you know, I would guess there's 5,000 people in the country who are, that this would be really up their alley. Uh, but, you know, if, if we reach them all, that's great. We don't, you know, that's totally fine. But what I think is great is if I can, you know, get some of them to share what they know, you know, and, and create a way that makes them kind of feel more connected to each other. That's really the goal because what the real epiphany behind the book that Wendy, DJ and I had was actually we wanted to write a book together because we were all sitting in a room and we we're like, we are not alone. Like we all have these same thoughts and same, same things, same things with our job. And we wanted to give that sort of feeling back to folks. And so that just seems like a way to be, to show that we're really open to that sort of ongoing conversation. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that story. That's so great. I mean, that's, you know, one of the reasons we exist, Lean Pub exists is to sort of provide a venue for like very good, highly specialized books that maybe only have, maybe have a smaller audience than any ordinary publisher would settle for. And also people who are kind of motivated by their mission in a way that sort of means that sort of slotting into a publisher's marketing schedule and publish publication timeline just, just doesn't match. There's nothing wrong with those things. It just doesn't match. Right. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, but I would, but I would say though, uh, having, having, um, gone through the books that if you're in an organization and you're trying to bring in data, 
these books are really great. I mean, whatever your organization is, whether it's in, it's in government or whether it's in a company, and I've interviewed a lot of people in this in this, in this podcast um, from who have similar problems, like very similar kinds of problems to address in companies. Um, it, this is actually a good sort of case study. They're good case studies for the kinds of problems you can encounter in any kind of organization, trying to bring in sort of data science, trying to manage it, things like that. Um, and I just want to, I can't help myself but mention about typos. Um, one, one of the reasons that uh, lean pub, you know, people often think it's, you know, it's just sort of for programming books, but, and that's because it's very popular with programmers, because if you're writing a program and you've got a typo, the whole thing blows yes. up. Um, and so the idea of, of, of books that could be like instantly changed and you just click a button and it's changed for everybody, uh, really appeals to programmers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's, it's, you know, if, if, if you're reading a line in a book and it says it was the best of times, it was the blurst of times, you're like, oh, he meant worst. That's fine. Moving on. But if you're showing a code sample in a book and the code sample's wrong, you, you really need to be able to fix it. Yes. Um, the uh, the um, last question I always save on this podcast, if the guest is, is someone who's published a book on LeanPub, is um, if there was any magical feature we could build for you and your team, or if there was anything that you found incredibly frustrating or even broken about LeanPub, um, what would you ask us to, to do for you? I'm, I'm not sure that I have any, any problems about, I think the, the thing that, I, that always in both times, and I, I wrote myself a big note in case we do volume three, is that there, there are a lot more like metadata things to fill out when you list a book than I, I, forget, I, you know, I think about. So I, that's my job. I'm sort of the author responsible for that. But in this case, when I had six, co five co-authors, I realized, well, I, I didn't actually agree with them on what we were going to do as the short description, what were we going to do as a full description. And like, I didn't have like a sort of a checklist of things to get to run by all of them. So I was like, I'm going to list the book tonight. It's going to go live. And then I was like, oh, follow up email. I need you all to be sure that you're comfortable with this information that's going to be listed on the listing page. I think that listing process, just having like a checklist or something for authors to be aware of like that in case they're working with co-authors. If you're working on yourself, I'm sure it wouldn't be a problem, but coming up with it on the fly with co-authors was a little tricky. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I've never had someone suggest that before, but um, uh, we, do have, we do have, you know, various kind of um, guides in our uh, help center, you know, for our various writing modes. And then like, what if you're translating a book, you know, things like that. And actually um, having one for like, you know, just what are some of the things about co-op? We do, and we do have an article about how to set up co-authors on a LeanPub book, but that's sort of more of a technical how to write it thing rather than a kind of what are the challenges of, of co-authoring a book. And um, I've certainly heard a lot of, from people on this podcast about those kinds of challenges, including the kind of thing you're talking about. So I'll, I'll definitely put that on our list of things to do because that could be, it can be really helpful for people to sort of not have to reinvent the wheel every time they, they, they do something like that. Well, uh, Jared, uh, thank you very much for uh, taking time to talk to everybody today. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as one of the uh, platforms for publishing your books. Well, thanks so much for having me, Len. And yeah, thanks for making LeanPub. Like it did make it possible for us to be able to communicate this topic and share it with our audience. And, and it was, a you know, I don't think we would have thought of writing a book if we didn't know there was a platform for which we could sort of do that, that wasn't requiring us to go the route of a publisher. So, you know, I think it, it is really serving that purpose. And um, it's been strange to sort of become an author through that process and sort of go through that. So um, we, uh, from all of us at uh, the EDDR team, we're very grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that and to build our community around those texts. Oh, well, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And I'm going to make sure to tell everybody on the team about that. Great. Thanks.
And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.